Welcome back to another episode of Half Wheel and Scotty Barrow. What do we got on this episode? Well, we are looking at the three big races to finish out the season, and we also give you a nice tutorial for free. We're going to look at Flanders, the World Championships, the Dutch women's team. Was it cohesion or was it chaos? And Alaphilippe's attacks and also Remco's big mouth. The other thing we're going to look at is Paris-Roubaix, the classic women's and men's race this year. It's unreal. But also, why Sonny Colbrelli and Coolangatta Gold, their celebrations on the grass or commiserations were incredible. And we're also going to look at the unique challenge that Wonderboy, Vanderpol, and Wow Van Art face, specific to those two blokes in particular. And finally, we provide you a tutorial of how to ride the cobbles with a bit of panache to the point where if you wanted to, you could half-wheel your opponents. Oh, yeah. Let's drop the hammer. to be working alongside Peach Challenge and Bicycle Network for Peach Challenge Falls Creek, which is on Sunday the 13th of March in 2022. Scott Barrow and Ross Hill are doing it, your co-hosts. So we're looking forward to that. We're actually really lucky, and you listeners are really lucky too. A discount code is available for your entry fee, so it does knock a bit off your price. I'll put the discount code in the show notes, so um, that forces you to read our show notes, which is... (laughs) There's some scintillating repartee in there. Don't worry about that. So there is. There's a the, bit of love in them in the oh, show notes, isn't it? It's not just a factual account. Nah. There's a bit of creative love in there. For fuck's sake, give it a look. And now you get a code. Like all the the planets are aligning, and it gets you yeah. a cheaper entry fee. Seriously, if you want a challenge, as we just start to eke our way out of these COVID lockdowns, and you want to set yourself a really big challenge on the bike, Peach Challenge is the one. 235 kilometers, 4,000 meters of climbing. Doesn't get any more epic on a bike. Get on it. Scotty, we were witness to one of the most epic sights in cycling, cycling Nirvana almost in the birthplace of Hard Bastards, Belgium, for the World Championships, which was touch on two weeks ago now. We knew that the racing going into it, and we spoke about it, the racing was going to be fantastic because it always is. It's always a great race to watch. But I don't think we were quite prepared for the crowds and the atmosphere that we witnessed in Flanders for the World Championships this year. It was quite incredible. It wasn't it? So many people on the side of the road. I heard the figure was quoted 1.25 million across the whole course of the Worlds. Is that right? On that, especially the men's day, the culmination day. Yeah. And then when, you know, when they were going through the city of Leuven, how many people were there on the side of the roads? You know, they were like eight and ten deep there. I read a quote that uh, Michal Kwiatkowski put out in, in one of the publications and it really put it into context what it was like to be riding in it. He said that it was r- like riding into a cyclone. <laughs> and some of the shots you saw, like they were like sardines packed in there on the side of the road. And, and I did hear Wout actually say that um, when he was trying to converse with Jasper Sturvin, that they could barely communicate no. with each other because the noise was so great. So that sort of gives you a bit of an indication of just the whole bloody atmosphere of the whole thing. It was bloody incredible. So you had that and then you had uh, the, how they raced it. We looked at the parkours and it didn't look super hard and it wasn't, say, as hilly as Amstel or Flanders, but because it wasn't that hilly, they raced it hard and fast. And so you had this incredible supporter atmosphere and then the way they were racing it, it was just unreal sport. It was some of the best sport I've ever watched, I reckon, that World Champs. Yeah, hard to disagree with you there, mate. It was off chops, to be honest. Like both days, both elite Mm. women's and elite men's, both worthy of being world championship races, but it's probably worthwhile if we kick it off with a bit of a chat about the women's yeah. race because, as we expected, it had a bit of everything, didn't it? Yeah. I was watching it. I don't know. I didn't catch it right from the start or anything, but it was about 60 Ks to go when it all really kicked off and the attacks started flying in particular. And, um, you know, everyone was talking about the Dutch team as well, a lot of big names in it. I'm not going to go through them now. You can look them up if you want. But, you know, they were either attacking off the front or covering other people attacking. And it was just hot as hell. It was amazing. And then, um, yeah, so you had their sort of the way they were doing their thing, the Dutch, and then uh, in the end, the Italians and what they did for their sprinter. We spoke about the Dutch tactics prior to the race um, in the women's race in Tokyo for the Olympics, and Mm. it went pear-shaped for them there. 
Did you feel that there was any adjustment there? Did they play any different hands that maybe altered things a little bit from Tokyo, do you think? From the outside, it seemed like they did in that um, every time a move went up the road, they were there, they were represented, they were on it. So they were sort of, you know, they were covering the race. So that was good. They had uh, Anna van der Breggen, world champion, you know, she was the one we mentioned last time as well. She rode on the front very early on, covering things as well and holding the pace. So she was finishing up, retiring. She wasn't worried about her own result at all. So she was just riding on the front. So she was sort of gone with 50Ks to go. She wasn't there. And then Annemiek van Vluten, another world champ, a gun. They weren't riding for her because they were riding for Voss. And she then covered and attacked and covered all sorts of things in that last 40, 50, 60Ks as well. Like incredible. She was so committed. So there was that. And then, you know, we'll cut to the end. Voss got second. They didn't get the result. Um, so then I've also heard that there was a bit of criticism, you know, why didn't they get a result and why weren't they a bit better organised to provide Voss a better lead out into the sprint? So that's how it seemed to me. What did you make of it? Yeah, it's an interesting one, you know, like with such a power team, they obviously set themselves up for criticism straight away, you know. Anything less than a win is going to invite some pretty strong opinions the other way. So. They obviously grapple with or struggle with that cohesion. And we spoke about their leadership prior to the race and they're very strong riders, but somehow they, in some small way, they don't know how to ride for each other or ride for a particular rider. So, look, I think Voss was set up for the sprint. There's no question about that. She, if anything, probably just got the sprint wrong. Let's be honest. I mean, I don't think they could have delivered her in any better way, really. I think it was there for her and the Italian was just a little bit too strong. Yeah. The Italian's power, when the sprint happened, yeah, um, Balsamo, her sprint was much more powerful and smooth. Voss was sort of clambering all over her bike to try and get there. She almost did, but didn't. Before Voss went in the sprint, she was sitting on the wheel, sitting up quite comfortably, like for about five seconds, ten seconds. And so I reckon, to me, on the outside, the Dutch team, they, during the race, in that last 60Ks in the open field, before it came down to the final, they were covering things, they were there, they were doing things. At the very end, with one, one and a half Ks to go, all of a sudden you saw the Italian team come. You hadn't seen them. They, you'd seen one what, single Italian riders, but it had been all the Dutch. And then all of a sudden you've got three Italian riders and their sprinter with a one and a half Ks to go, and they're like, it's unreal. And apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently Italy have a decent reputation at World Champs of being able to team well to get. So that's the rep. But then when it came down to the one and a half Ks for the Dutch team, Things started hotting up right there at the end. The Dutch team were a bit scattered. And so um, Voss was on her teammate's wheel and then her teammate pulled out of the line and then Voss had to then get across a gap, like surge out of the gap prematurely. She then got to sit on the wheel for a bit, but that might have been enough to just dull the sprint for when she needed to get come out of the top. So yeah, I think they might have stuffed up the sprint in the last 500 metres. But before that, it seemed like they were having a go. But again, I don't know the ins and outs and exactly what the plan was. Yeah, it was probably when you analyse it, uh, the teamwork aspect to it was far superior to Tokyo. Yeah. And like you said, at the end of a race, just having to bridge that little bit of a gap, you know, even if it's just a small one, can sometimes just take that little bit of juice out of you that could be the difference. And in a pretty uh, narrow margin in terms of first and second, yeah, it can obviously have a big impact. It was a little bit unexpected, I reckon, for Voss too, because what had happened is the Italians were on, they were all on one line, but Voss followed her teammate's wheel and the teammate was starting to veer off. And all of a sudden Voss realised, oh shit, I'm actually on the wrong trainee. I've got to jump there. So I don't reckon, I don't know, that's what I'm assuming she wouldn't have seen. It just looked like all of a sudden she had to go, oh shit, I've got to get over there. So yeah, it might have made a difference. But um, yeah, she's the, um, her and Tony Martin are the two best uh, riders of all time at World Championships, you know? She's, yeah, her record is incredible. She's pretty much the best rider of all time, aside from Merckx. And then you got Tony Martin, who's like 16 medals at World Champs or something. So some amazing performers. And the other thing with Voss was that her first World Championships where she got a medal was 2006. So she's been right at the top at World Champion level pretty much the whole time. She hurt her back for about two years, pretty much for the whole time for 15 years. It's just incredible. So you think about, okay, she's had some victories, but as a rider who can finish a race off, how many has she been in? Like, you know, yeah. to be racing for that long, to be in the mix is, you know, requires, we know that it requires such a big effort. There wouldn't have been many where she's not in the mix, like she's totally blown up and not been a part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it can be too critical sometimes, and I think sometimes you just get beaten by a better rider yeah. on the day, don't you? 
Yeah, yeah, no, and when you watch that sprint, and it's a good sprint to look at, especially when they give you the aerial view and you can see what's going on. But Balsamo's power production was really smooth, and you know she looked really powerful on the bike. Whereas Voss was sort of a bit more desperate and wasn't as coordinated for her standards. Yeah, just in terms of you know the sprint. Yeah, mm. just some body parts going in directions yeah. that were were just starting yeah. to get a bit sloppy, weren't they, towards the end yeah. of the race? Yeah. Whereas Balsamo had that nice, easy, smooth power, like that footage we watch of Cav, you know, when I think it was with HTC and we, back in, I don't know, like 2010, and the sprint was just so smooth, but it was just so fast. Now, mate, with the men's race the very next day, you watched the first few hours, didn't you? You watched the start of the race or early parts? Because I didn't watch it until like at 75 k's to go, I think. Hard, fast, 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 fast. I can't emphasize <laughs> that enough. What stood out from the start, and I was aware of these comments prior to the race because commentators did mention it a few times, but Remco Evanpole was very active early. Any sort of half attack, he was all over, almost as if to prove Eddie Merckx wrong. Obviously, for people who may not be aware of it, Eddie Merckx raised some concerns about uh, Evanapol being in the Belgian team. Um, he thought he, he might not know how to race for the team. He might he knows how to race for himself, and that's probably about it. So it seemed as if Remco was on a bit of a mission to prove Eddie Merckx wrong. Might be just a Belgian thing that they all want to be on Eddie's good side. But, mate, there was an attack with 180 kilometres to go. And he was all over it. He was racing like he was in the mix for the win. And then I think it was about, it would have been about the mid part of the race. And he basically just kept jumping on attacks all the time. And it was like, okay. So he's obviously not racing for himself here because he's cooking himself massively. And and then gave a huge effort to the bottom of the last climb, basically. So he rode as hard as he could all day. He was the strongest rider for the day. Really, mm. when you look at, you know, effort, power and all that sort of stuff, like he emptied the tank massively. Alaphilippe obviously was the winner and had a huge race, but he was probably the standout um, topic for me early in the race, Remco Evnipol. Yeah, I reckon um, there was the break that he was in and then there was the peloton and they got to that cobbled climb, I think it's called the Verweed or something, at about 55Ks to go and that's when Alaphilippe did his first attack and, you know, that separated a big part of the bunch. So then there was about essentially end up being about 17 guys. No, it was about 12 guys and they joined up to the break that Evan Apol was in. And then when they joined up straight away, like 50Ks to go or 45Ks to go, Evan Apol just rode on the front then for the last 20Ks, didn't he? Yeah. Like 20Ks on the front at that stage of the game. And, uh, yeah, it was amazing. Like he... Uh, like a miniature just... Tim de Klerk, Scotty. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> on the same team. Well, Tim had already done it for that day, hadn't he? Yeah. He'd done it earlier. You know, and riding pace hard enough that no one in that bunch of 17, lead bunch, wanted to do anything. They didn't want to attack at that point. I know there's been a bit of byplay since uh, in terms mm. of Remco and Wow, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But yeah. it's a pretty big effort for a guy like him who is a Grand Tour prospect in the years to come, just to take the bit between the teeth and say, righto, I'm just going to bury myself on the front with no real care for my own chances or anything like that. It's all for the team. That's what it appeared like to the naked eye watching telecast. When you talk about Remco and Nepal, there's a shortfall in his tactics. I think he's still starting to gather his tactical nous in terms of how he races. There's absolutely no doubt in his ability and his engine, the way he rides, because he's going to be an absolute freak show. He's still just gathering everything together to be the complete package in terms of his tactical nous in a race. Yeah, and that's well, that's the point we made about um, Matthew Vanderpol too. These guys have come up as prodigies and Evanapol's come up in such a short period of time and he has progressed because he's getting just right away from people. Like at Tour of Poland, you remember Tour of Poland last year or two years ago? He just rode away. 80Ks to go, he just rode away from them all. So when you're that strong and that's your weapon, you don't have to learn tactical savvy, do you? Because you're progressing without it. And it's not until maybe it gets a bit of heartache that you start to force to develop that thing that you didn't need to before. Yeah, and it's a scary proposition. Pretty impressive, isn't he? Like, he's not that big. He's in probably in the 60 kilo, right? He's 60, isn't he? He's about 67 or something. Big horsepower, you know, two podiums in a row or three podiums in a row, world champs TT. Pretty amazing yeah. for a little package. Yeah, little fella. Young guy who give him a climbing course, he'll be a world champion at some point if the course mm. continues. No doubt about that. No. Alaphilippe attacked with the lap of the Leuven circuit to go. 
my God, his attacks in the last 50 kilometres were absolutely breathtaking, Scott. There was, I counted them because I had to <laughs> five times. We split the group on that first climb at 55Ks at the Vuid, and there's five of them, and every one of them was full tilt too. They weren't just doing it and looking around. So, no, he was going. It's incredible. He was easily, like you talk about uh, Evanapol being the strongest. Well, the other one was him. Like he, he was dancing when the others were just hanging on for dear life. And we spoke about in previous episode when we were sort of previewing the world champs, just about his bike skills and how he handles himself on the bike. And there's a lot happening. We, we know that, but he is supremely talented in that area. And for a guy to be able to do that when he's out of the saddle climbing, just picking his line, jumping out of gutters onto cobbled parts of the road to another bit of concrete to a little bit of bitumen, mate, it's, it adds even more to the, to the mystique around the guy. That was good, wasn't it, when you... I know that one in the, the city, the climb of the city, where you had those two, like there was the cobbled bit in the middle and then the two strips. Um, wasn't there? strips. Everyone was in a line, weren't they? They were all in single file. Just, oh, thank God, you know, we'll just stay and stay nice and organised. We'll just go. And he just jumps out and went, whooshka. I always read Wout's mind when he looked up and Alaphilippe's out of the saddle again on the attack. And, oh, fuck, did this bloke just fuck off. Yeah. He just keeps yeah. doing this. Yeah. Oh, mate. And as big an engine as Wout's got and as how talented he is, it's hard yeah. to respond to any attacks from Alaphilippe in that sort of no. thing. And then, you know, we put up that quote he had. Like, it's not as though he does the attack and then just spins to the end nice. He's, he's having to hold the gap. And it takes courage to hold that gap, knowing that you got to do it, knowing that there's a chance that, not that he thinks like this, but knowing that you might get run down. And also the pain involved, like he says, like it hurts like fucking hell to do that. And all those guys do it, but that's what it takes. Yeah, he buried himself, didn't he? Mm. Regardless of whether you love or hate him. And, and there is, there are some people who Philippe isn't their cup of tea, and that's okay. But my God, you've got to respect him after that race, you know, to do right. it back to back. Incredible. It's huge. There was a couple of other little notable top tenners here. So the top 10, Scotty, was Philippe, Dylan Van Baal second, Michael Valgren third, which was another good ride. He was one we spoke about yeah. in the preview. Mm. Fourth was Jasper Sturvin, fifth, Nielsen Powers, sixth, Tom Pidcock which is a good sign. He's, mm, he made great, an impression. Great ride. Uh, seventh yeah. uh, was Stebar. Uh, Vanderpoel, eight. Uh, Seneschal was ninth. And Sonny Colbrelli was number 10. Straight mm. into the top 10. So some favourites there, some pre-race favourites and some other guys who are on the up. We just needed a good lie down after that race. It was <laughs> <laughs> so consuming. And, I mean, such a great event in Belgium. I, I could only imagine what it was like to be there. Yeah, it would have been epic, you know. You could see that all those uh, plazas and corner blocks with all the cafes and bars and stuff and people having a drink and then come out back out and watch it live as it goes past. And that's why so often those multiple lap or loop races are just so good. I think that's where pro cycling's got to go to more towards that sort of stuff. I mean, that that was like a crit or a commise, wasn't it? Just accelerating hard out of every corner. You could see the pace was just relentless. Yeah, it was just a, it was exciting, exciting racing, unreal. We love the Tour de France for what it brings and the scenery and, and same with all the other Grand Tours. They're great. It's fantastic. But some of those circuit races on a technical course like that, it was mm. fucking fantastic. It really was. It was bloody brilliant to watch. Mm. Now, to cap it off, we've given uh, Remco having a pole, bit of a pump up. We also need to, you know, have the quiet word as well. So you saw what he said after the race. I want to ask you what you think of it, Russ. In the press, if you didn't read it, he said, my legs were strong enough to win on the day and I told them that I thought it might have been a mistake putting me in the role of covering the brakes and all that. So that's that's what he said. <laughs> so, Ross, if you're his manager or his mentor or whatever, or even Patrick Lefebvre or whoever, whoever it is, comes out saying that, he's 21 years old, what do you say to him? Um, let's just keep a lid on it, Remco. This is where, sorry, this is in the context of Wout didn't get a podium and their teammate Stoven got a fourth. So that's the context as well. Yep. Let's keep a lid on it, Remco. Keep going. Let's keep a lid on it. You're young, you've got enormous talent and all going well with some luck in future years. You're going to be a world champion. There's a possibility you could be a grand tour winner. You may even win an Olympic medal. Who knows? I think you've just got to do your time in terms of being a team player. And if team management say we're in for out, then this is the line we play to the outside listener, viewer, whoever it might be, cycling fan. That's my advice to him, Scotty. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, even if he believes that is the truth, or even if it is the truth, Remco, you shut the fuck up. Because it's the fucking easiest thing in the world to say after the fact, oh, yeah, I could have done this, I could have done that. That wasn't your role. And it just doesn't, it's the same as like we discussed a while ago, it's the same as Bernard Tomich sort of saying, oh, yeah, maybe I should have got a bit fitter when I came to Wimbledon, you know. Just because you feel it to be true doesn't mean you say it. it and it, it makes everything look bad, doesn't it? it does. Just So you've got to accept the job that he's given in the team role, or if he doesn't accept it, argue with him. But then once he does it, that's it. Shut the fuck up. Because it reflects poorly on everyone, doesn't it? It makes everyone look at wow and go, oh, wow, you didn't do very well. And the team tactics weren't ever that, that good and blah, 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 blah. And then, as we know, Ross, then you got wow who heard this comes and he goes, well, I don't understand because Remco said that he was told that he was meant to get in the early break at 180 Ks. Like you said, he was covering it all. And he goes, that wasn't the plan at all. So then Wout's fucking, and I've got to be honest, mate, I'm going to go with Wout, that little bit older. And the Remco's still trying to prove himself. I've got to believe, I'm, I'm going to believe Wout. But it just doesn't look good, does it? No, 100%. 100%. You go with Wout because Jack Hill, the blind miner, could have worked out that Wout was the team leader. There was no question yeah. about that. And mm. it probably goes back to what I spoke about a little bit earlier about Remco needing to get his tactical racing mouse and that side of things on a level par with his ability. That's what led me to believe that he wasn't listening in the team meeting. There's yeah. a lot of parts about tactical. It's not just out on the road. It's in the team meeting and understanding that you don't go in a break at 180 Ks to go if that's not what your instructions were. Yeah. And also that tactical awareness about the difference between riding for someone else or riding for yourself He's saying to himself, oh, I'm riding for them because I'm in the break, I'm covering it. But then he's saying after, oh, I, I had better legs. That means he's thinking, oh, I'd rather get off the chain for myself right now during the race, you know what I mean? And I reckon, Scotty, the conversation that, or the press about this would have been warranted had it been a situation where Remco's ridden up next to Wout and Wout shook his head and said, no, it's me. Mm. You know, if there was a situation like that and Remco said, I'm good, I'm good to go, but that didn't mm. happen at all. He just flogged mm. himself stupid. So, you know, if Miani had a dick, she'd be my uncle. That's old, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit like that old statement, you know. Um, don't come after the fact. Mm. And, I mean, I don't think – no, there's no way he would have beaten Alaphilippe anyway because how is he going to beat him on the day that Alaphilippe had it anyway? You know what I mean? Yeah. He's not going to out-sprint him at the line. He's not going to be out out-climbing because the climbs are short. It's not going to happen. So there's that. And also, I'd, to be fair to Remco too, I'm not having a go at him, he's, but um, it doesn't. it's not good when you say that after the fact. You always look like a dickhead. But also, I don't think it cost his behaviour. I don't think it really cost um, Wow the victory or a podium either. Wow did not have a good day for his standards. You know, you were saying when um, Philippe attacked on that last little two-rung little driveway climb, he didn't have that customary snap or, or just that real strength where he can just mow down everything and keep pulling stuff back. He had to sort of grind his way back. and You could tell it was costing him more than it normally did. It was the early parts of what we saw most recently that fatigue was just starting to set in, which is probably warranted given the year yeah. they've had. But to finish off on the Remco point, yes. I think it might be one thing that he looks back on in five to eight years and thinks, "Gee, I was a bit young and silly there, wasn't I? <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe I, I thought I, I thought I knew exactly what was going on, but in actual yeah. fact, I didn't know anything compared yeah. to what I know now. Yeah, doesn't even know, didn't even know what he didn't know, and didn't even realise why he should have shut the hell up too. Yeah, he'll live and learn, Scotty. I reckon. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you think he would, he's in the right team to get some good guidance, you would have thought, with a whole lot of good, strong riders around him in, at Quickstep. So, yeah. What about this last quote, mate, from Alaphilippe? Uh, These are races where you have to hurt yourself. You have to be willing to be masochistic instead of his solo attack in Leuven. I was at breaking point. It's horrible, but that's how you build great victories. I'd already attacked several times, but the last time I said to myself, I would put everything into it. <laughs> that's what it looked like. Like, talk about he's such a um, courageous rider, isn't he? Like, full-hearted attack. A lot of riders don't do that because they don't believe that it can work or they don't, haven't got the courage because, you know, they're concerned about it if it doesn't work, you know, the failure fact. Yeah, and it's something that we've spoken about a bit. If it doesn't work, who cares? Give mm. it a go, race by feel and see what happens. You know, you attack. There's mm. no failure. No, and, if you, and, you, and if you give it a go, give it your best ever go and see what happens. Harry Roubaix, mm. my God. <laughs> the talk of the conditions in any way does not do this justice. 
I'm almost uneasy talking about it because it was fucking unbelievable. My God, it was unbelievable. It was horrendous. It was epic. It was filthy. It was magnificent. It was incredible. All rolled into one. Mm. It gives me chills just thinking about it still. Yeah, and um, it was all those adjectives you used there. And then that takes my mind to the finish line where the winner and the third place rider, which we know to be Cole Borelli and Coolangatta Goal, Wonder Boy, when they were both lying on the ground crying. And I was just, I was looking at that and the covered in mud and all that, and you know what they've been through. And it's like, I defy anyone who's ever had a good go at anything that includes some physical demand as well, and then gone incredibly deep and then also pinned your total hopes on it because that's why you're racing in the first place. I defy anyone to judge that behavior because I think anyone who's ever a real good go at something and something so long and so hard, so exhausting and such a big event to look at them and go, you know, oh, why are they crying? Why do they care so much? I just felt like that just represents everything. And it was just so inspiring to see those two guys behave like that, to be honest. That's how I felt when I was watching them on the ground. I've heard other people thought, oh, it might have been a bit much. I, so those people, I just say, well, I don't think you've been anywhere near it. If you don't don't, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote some notes here, Scotty, just to back that up. For me, Cole Brelli's celebration is going to be something that lives long in the memory. A lot of races, you know, we spoke about Alaphilippe. You know, when you go deep and you, you bug it at the end, Paris-Roubaix brings a special kind of bug it and I mean, on so many levels, emotional, physical, mental, it's the whole package. And that's just an it's just an outpouring of everything at once. Oh, it was, uh, yeah, again, it gives you chills just thinking about it. It was spectacular. Yeah, and even when they started, you know, they started the race in the rain on the, you know, on the normal roads for ages and it's like, oh, it's just hideous. Yuck. With the start, <laughs> you text me right at the start of the race. Actually, no, it had been going for, or I think it had been going for almost an hour at that point. Mm. And your text was something like, this is ridiculous, the pace that they are going at. And it was, it was, what were they averaging for the first hour? It was off its head. It was 51 yeah. or something. Wasn't it? Yeah, I think it, yeah, that's right. The first hour was 51 Ks. It's like, how the fuck do they do that? And I was just even thinking on the wet, you know, surely there's more drag when you're riding on a wet road and yet they were flying. Crosswinds, headwind, yeah. any wind coming from anywhere. Um, they were copping it. Mm. And when you know what you've got coming in terms of mm. mud and cobbles, uncertainty and fear, mm. I mean, there was a crash 200 metres after the neutral zone when Mitch Docker went down, just yeah. an inexplicable sort of a slide out, um, which wasn't his fault. Um, mm. But, I mean, geez, they're tough bastards. I don't know when it became really obvious to me, but um, especially in the men's because it was um, a bit uh, a bit wetter on the ground, you know, obviously for the, for the men's race. I just thought, you know, some races you get in a breakaway and there's a chance you can stay away. At Roubaix, there's a better than average chance of staying away sometimes because the sections just wear everyone down sort of evenly, you know, because you don't ride in a bunch as much. So you don't get the slipstreaming advantage as much because the group doesn't stay together, right? But then I just thought in these wet, muddy conditions, it almost just becomes like a mud wrestle where you sprint out into your positions about, you know, how far everyone is down the road. But it almost, it's hard, very hard for those back markers to close those gaps. It's like you all of a sudden you're racing in quicksand and no one can really gain any time. Some riders did gain time, but a lot of them just didn't. And some of those early breakaway guys, they just stayed out there. And so I thought, you know, you want to be at the front when you hit those sectors because you don't, you want to minimize, um, you know, that you're sitting behind. So you don't want to be brought down by others. But I just thought that was a day, if ever you could be really rewarded for getting out early, that was the day. Yeah, for sure. There's so many factors that come into it, isn't there? A lot of luck goes into it. Obviously, you've got to race hard and go really to your limit early. But if you can get some luck to get in that early break and be in a reasonably good position for the majority of the start of that race, first couple of sectors, first half a dozen sectors, Mm. it sets you up in a good way. Yeah. And so that was, if we go to the women's race on the Saturday, um, Lizzie Dagner, who won, that's how it happened. Now, we didn't get to see that. I had to read this. We didn't get to see it because the SBS telecast, for some reason, only came on in the last, you know, with two hours to go or something, which is a bit shit. You know, they, they got their first ever women's Paris Bay and they, for whatever, I'm not blaming SBS on this. It might be, it might have been the host broadcaster, but uh, we didn't get to see it. But anyway, yeah, Dagner said she wasn't even riding for her. She was third in line on, on the Trek team. And she said, oh, well, I better go to the front. 
leading into the first sector, as she did. And at the end of the sector, it was a 3K sector or whatever, or a 2.5K sector. She looked around, she's got 30 seconds. So she goes, oh, I'll keep riding because it helps the team. And all of a sudden, she was out to two and a half minutes. And then Voss comes at 40Ks to go and uh, can't quite get her back and wasn't able to. So she was good enough to ride and stay out there. But it's almost like as simple. It's like where you start is where you finished. Yeah, it's hard to make ground up. The bitumen sectors are almost superfluous, really, aren't they? Like you're, mm. you're almost yeah. recovering from the barrage you've just taken on the cobble sector, mm. um, trying to recover and get ready for the next one. So other than a, a massively heroic effort to really dig deep to make any ground, you're not really going to make much time up on that group person in front of you, whoever it may be. So no. just no. on the, the women's race, I know we're going to wax pretty lyrical about the men and their bike handling on the cobbles, on the muddy cobbles. It was wet also for the women. Mm. The difference here is some of these women, or most of them, would not top 70 kilograms. It wouldn't be any more than 70 kilos. Some of the bike handling, and and we know that these sort of courses and this sort of terrain favours that heavier cyclist. Um, Mm. Obviously, there's a bit of an advantage, you know, having your, your weight distribution on the bike. Some of the bike handling, particularly from Lizzie Dignan, was unbelievable. The, the vision of her snaking on the yeah, cobbles. That was unreal. Wasn't oh, that was, she was a winner just for that effort, I reckon. Yeah, and that's where, again, if you're out in front, not necessarily solo breakaway, but in the front couple on in the group you're in, you can correct those things without the risk of someone coming down in front of you or behind you and all that sort of stuff. You get, And also you get to choose your line. I mean, it's like mountain biking. You've got to be able to choose your line, whereas if you're in a bunch or there's a couple of people either side of you or whatever and you can't choose your line or you're forced to go in a spot because someone's about to crash in front of you, that's the advantage, isn't it? You've got that higher ability to correct if you're sort of uh, out in front a bit more. In both races, it was really pronounced, if you were off the middle of that cobbled sector as, as you were riding down it, yeah. the drop away was quite significant um, yeah. and that's where the snaking would begin. And, you know, you can recover it on a dry day almost and you quite often the riders do choose each side of it. You know, there might be mm. a piece of turf that they find with no cobble on it and they'll go on the side. But if you weren't in the middle, you were in yeah. all sorts both races. <laughs> Yeah, and that, you remember when in the back to jump to the men's, you know, when Moscon was out in front and he's looking really good and looking strong and he'd been in the break all day and all that, and then he had got the flat and swapped the bike and perhaps there's word is perhaps the tyre pressure was different. I find that hard to believe, but perhaps it was. Or maybe it just felt, anyway, you know, when he slipped over, like he, it was like on an ice rink, wasn't it? That wasn't cobbles. That was just all mud. He just slid for ages on that. I thought, oh, the poor bugger, it just missed the line probably by one mil and then it's just gone whoop, Yeah, and out it slid. The old game of inches line. They're, they're the crashes feet. that don't hurt because you just hit the ground instantly sliding. Yeah. I just wanted to say one thing about the women's race before we move on. Their race was 111 Ks and the last 80 Ks were the same last 80 Ks of the traditional men's race. The women had 17 sectors as opposed to 30 sectors with the men's. Um, they had 29 Ks of Parve as opposed to 50 Ks for the men's. But interesting too, the women average speed for the race was 40 Ks an hour. And they had, uh, as a percentage, they had uh, more completions of the race and less dropouts. So uh, the, the women's level on this race was just freaking phenomenal. And I'm not being condescending or patronising. Like, oh, it's like, shit, it's just unreal. I just wanted to point that out because it was um it was great. It's about time they got a chance to do it. I loved it. And, you know, when Voss decided with about 30Ks or so to try and pull back Lizzie Dignan, there was a massive crash behind her on the group because everyone was sort of scrambling for the wheel and trying to up their speed through the cobbles. And they, there was some horrific crashes there too. Big, ones, that, ones that looked worse than in the men's, I felt. They looked much harsher. I'd agree with that. Big, heavy falls on shoulders and backs yeah, and yeah. Um, look like they could have done some damage. But so much was made of the men's race. You know, oh, this is going to be the first muddy race in 10 years or whatever it might be. You know, we haven't had a, an epic muddy race like this. Well, okay, that's no worries to talk about that. How about you throw <laughs> the women's race for the first time at Paris Bay and give them an absolute shit heap to ride on? And they went fucking really, really well. So there you go. That's That's why we wax lyrical so much about women's cycling because it's fucking good. Cole Bradley. He's morphed into one of the best riders in the world. He's in the top five riders in the world in my book. Mm. Tactically, his race, his Paris-Roubaix was perfect. Yeah, it was. He did the right amount of work. 
He wasn't leaving too much to everyone else. He pulled turns. He pulled a really big turn to get across to a chase group or he chased across to the group in front of him at one point. Like he drove that. Uh, he's super strong. Followed every move. You might recall when Vermish took off in the last three or four K or whatever that attack might have been. Colbrelli was the one that chased it down straight yeah. away. Couldn't get a goal. was slightly slow on that one. He chased it, was onto it straight away. Mm. Worthy Parry Roubaix winner in my book. And he's a horse in all one days from now on in, and if not every race that he goes in, because he's at the top level. Yeah, he's had an incredible year, hasn't he? I mean, do you remember to point to that? Um, yeah, he rode a great race, no doubt. He, like you say, he did ride on the front, not to be a hero or to show that he's strong, but he rode on the front strategically to pull back a break or get over to a group and that. But then as soon as Vanderpol joined him, he just sat on Vanderpol's wheels because Vanderpol's always happy to do that. And every time there was a little gap, he, he was able to close it. So he he was strong and he definitely rode a very efficient, smart race. And obviously everything went well for him. And then as soon as he closed in those closing Ks, you know, that little rise where Vermeesh attacked, um, as soon as he closed that, you knew that he was like, oh, he's a, he's a good chance because he's still got some strength at all. But anyway, I just wanted to point to, you know, Cole Borelli uh, finished second, I think, in the green jersey competition at the Tour de France this year behind Cavendish. And on the, I think it was the first stage where Pogaccio put one and a half minutes into, you know, the top four or five of his rivals. Remember that? You remember he rode away from his rivals back to back days? Like one and a half minutes, mate. On that day, on that first day when Pogaccio did that, Cole Brelli finished third in the stage. He did too. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone was scratching so their like, heads. What's going on there? Yeah. And at the European champ just recently, you know, a circuit course, hilly, you know, some legitimate climbs, but not mountain climbs or anything like that, but hilly. And it's Everpol on the front trying to sort of ride him off his wheel on the hill, couldn't do it. And Kyle Brelli hung on and obviously then was going to win the sprint. So, yeah, like he's climbing and he's, he's just had an incredible year. And so have Bahrain victorious. Now, everyone laughed when Bahrain Merida dropped the, um, not Merida, Bahrain McLaren dropped McLaren at the sponsorship and then changed their name to Bahrain Victorious and there was jokes about you know the Saudi Arabian or where you know that that, that Middle Eastern laughing, yeah it's like like the graphic designer you know going yep okay yeah you want to call it Bahrain Victorious okay no problems no problems yes you will call it Bahrain Victorious yes okay okay <laughs> And everyone's like, what a fucking stupid name. Well, it's fucking worked because they've been everywhere this year. Like, they've just had a year. Their whole team has just been riding high. Amazing. I'm happy to back it up with some stats for you. (laughs) Good. That's better than just bullshit my words. Two one-day race wins, three stage race overalls Mm -hmm. for Bahrain Victorious, 22 stage race stages, six Mm -hmm. of them being Grand Tour stages. They've had three national champ winners, Tratnik, Mohoric, Colbrelli, one Euro champ in Colbrelli, Jack Haig podium at the Vuelta. Mm-hmm. They won the team's classification at the Tour de France and the Vuelta. Mm. Yeah, they've been everywhere, haven't there they? There you go. The stats mm. say it all. Yeah. So, yeah, he's had an incredible year. They've had an incredible year. And, yeah, he, he did ride an excellent race. He was a deserved winner for sure. Do we want to then go on to cool and get a goal? Yep, I think that's an appropriate one to go on to next. Mm. I thought his effort was pretty meritorious given his build up. He was obviously in the world champs and um, was in the mix again and rode pretty well there, top 10. His build up was less than ideal, and that was the question mark in these few races whether he'd be able to get up for it. His attack with 70 Ks to go was so decisive. And we know what he does. He just goes hard and he just burns everyone off. But geez, he drove on the front on some of those cobbled sectors. He was working his absolute ring off. Um, mm. I thought he was huge, Van der Poel. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he, we saw it in his celebration. Well, not his celebration, but his reaction at the end. He yeah. had nothing left in the tank, Scotty. Yeah, exactly. And that's why you're crying. It, I personally don't think it's as much disappointment as just the exhaustion. So he's a guy who's aerobically so talented. Like his FTP is like 485 or something, right? You know, and we've discussed how long you and I can hold that. That's half he can of hold it for my FTP at least. <laughs> well, well, you sorry, I'm half of it. <laughs> so he's aerobically so talented, but he's also talented at putting himself right on the edge and riding hard, hard and hurtful. That's what he does. And, and then when you get over line, when you've given it everything, 
and it's all finished, whether you win or lose, you're probably going to be crying, aren't you? Because you've gone that deep and that hard and you've given that much of yourself. I don't think there's going to be a race that we watch him in, whether it be a Grand Tour or a one-day classic, that we're going to be disappointed with how he performed or that he didn't give no. his all or no. that he left something out there. That's never going to be in question in my book. So therefore, just to flip it, you know, in terms of how smartly he wrote, that's how he does it. He's happy to ride in the front. He can do it. And there wasn't many other contenders to ride with. Once it, you know, it was about Arenberg, wasn't it? Where he, he put the hammer down during Arenberg, which everyone does. And then he took it onto the paved section after and kept riding hard, right? And then he bridged across on his own a few times and then caught up to Colbrelli. So he did that. He did a lot of work and that's his style. And, and he, I think you know, on this day it was appropriate too because he wasn't going to get much help. However, mate, do you feel, yeah, how do you mark, how do you assess how, how he went about it? Could he have done it slightly differently to get a better result? Well, I think there's a lack of trust in terms of, and I mean that by the conditions for one, I don't think he really trusted being behind anyone. Um, he wanted to be in control of his destiny in that sense. So given that he's happy to work hard and drive on the front, I think he preferred to be at the front of the pack there. And however hard he went was how hard he went. And I think that extends to he doesn't trust anyone else to drive the pace enough. Like His mind must always be, this is how I perceive it, his mind must always be ticking that, geez, I'm, I'm sitting third or fourth wheel. I'm getting a bit of a spell, but we're not going hard enough. You know, mm. who's this mm. rabbit on the front? Like, what's going mm. on there? I just think he likes controlling his own destiny a lot. And with that, Obviously, that's the way we would think because that's his strength as well, you know, to be able to push hard and suffer and preparedness to do it. On the flip side of that, that's where that maybe that tactical now could just grow a little bit. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not having a go at him. Literally, I'm not even hinting that he should have done better or he did something wrong. I'm not at all. But I'm just wondering a little bit about it. You know, could he have saved a bit of energy at some point? I don't reckon there was many occasions in Roubaix when he was doing all that riding. I really don't reckon there was many occasions where he could have. Like you said, he could have let Colbarelli lead through a few sectors or on the flat a bit more, a little bit more. But it's not as though it was glaringly obvious. It wasn't as though he was just being stupid with his strength. I mean, at the end of the day, he's finished in the top three, um, got into the velodrome. So physically, he must have been feeling okay. Um, yeah. Everything's easy in hindsight. If he maybe just backed off in a couple of little areas, would he have had any anything left in the tank? I'm not sure he would have. Like he yeah. went deep as it was. But yeah. The interesting thing comes, Scotty, when you know his career starts to progress, he starts to be in more tours and more stage races or one day, whatever they might be, on different terrain. If he's not with Wout, if he's not with Cole Bradley or these real powerful guys, is he just going to say, fuck it, I'm going. I might get done at the end, but so be it. I can't trust these blokes to set any pace. I'm going. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see tactically how he plays the next short portion of his career. Yeah, yeah, because we discussed what happens when he's in a three-up break with 10Ks to go with three guys or two other guys who are as strong as him, but what about when they're not as strong as him and then where's the tactical smarts come in there, you know, or I'll go and do it myself, and then he gets mowed down by, you know, the Peloton or whatever. And, look, this doesn't happen much, does he, because he wins a lot of the races he pushes in. But it's just very interesting because he's such a physical rider and a mental, you know, psychologically talented rider to be able to push and go hard. It's just interesting, that tactical part, the nouse part. And the other thing is, Ross, um, you know, like you say, he was coming back from the injury. And then in the Worlds, he was strong enough to finish in the top 10. But, you know, he had nothing. He couldn't be proactive at all. So still getting better. And then Roubaix was better again, of course. But, you know, remember when we were watching him and Wout ride through the shore break on the beach back in bloody February or wherever it was? Him and Wout were smashing each other then. Then, you know, Strata Bianchi, the physical output, the wattage output, that was incredible. He made Alaphilippe look slow on that last climb into Siena. Then he's come out and done some more racing. Then he's done the bloody incredible stage two of Tour de France. Then he's got ready for the mountain bike Olympics. And he would have been, he would have been the top three there, top four there, no doubt. But um, he had the crash and maybe that was a mistake too. He didn't realize the ramp was there or he forgot. Apparently people told him. So, and then he's had the injury. So what I'm saying in a long-winded way, it's been a long season for him. And as it has for Wout Van Aert. Now, Wout came into the Worlds fucking hot as hell, in form, all that, but he wasn't as strong as he normally is at the Worlds. 
See, these cyclocross guys and mountain bike guys, they're used to riding hard on themselves. They don't sit in slipstreams in that sport. So you're used to doing it hard on yourself and then you go on the road and you can do it. So you do. But they probably got both of them could just edge up their smartness at times, not just at times. And wow, at the Worlds, he wasn't the usual wow, was he? You couldn't close it. You're sitting in the wheels a lot more. Yeah, it's been a long year and Wout wins the Tour of Britain the week before the Worlds. So the bottom line is that Wout peaked two weeks early. He was on the tail dropping off uh, Roubaix and the Worlds because in Roubaix he rode strongly, but he got caught behind in Arenberg. He entered Arenberg about seven wheels back off Vanderpoel. He was in the group with Vanderpoel. He entered about seven or eight wheels back and Simon Clark punched it in front of him, crashed Wow, dodged it beautifully, but then boom, there's already a gap and he's got to close that gap on the pavement. And then he had to do it again. And both those times, it was because he was back in the group entering the sector, which is not how he normally rides. Yeah, he does it. Yeah, correct. No. And that was no more better example of that than when they hit the bitumen. He was in the first two or three wheels at the very least mm. because that's where he likes to ride. And you yeah. ride it. It was strange to see him at the back of a group. That will remain one of the great mysteries of this season, how he stayed up when Clark hit the deck in the Arenberg. His ball handling was That was incredible. It's like how he you can dodge. You and I can dodge, no worries, but then not slipping over, like you say. And there was a big focus on the cyclocross guys before Parry Bay, Scotty, but that was the best example of the skills that are needed to stay on a bike and then ride off on one of the hardest surfaces to regain momentum. Yeah, momentum. In the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the other good example of the cyclocross too, or, or just bike handling generally, was Coolangatta Gold. Vanapol on those sectors, on the corners, he was just putting one to two to three seconds into Colbrelli every time. It was amazing. And Colbrelli was closing it every time. So, yeah, like he would get one or two seconds gap every time on every right-angled corner. It was amazing, Vanderpol, how he could go through with so much more momentum. Probably speaks a bit more to Cole Rally's swing. Yeah. You know, how he had to really make up that ground that MVDP put into him. One other thing, mate. What about on Arenberg? Mads Peterson crashed into the back of an Ineos rider, which turned out to be, what was his name? Um, Luke Rowe. Luke Rowe. Yes. And I saw that, I think it might have been the replay, and I think I saw what seemed to be look like Luke Rowe had mounted his bike and he was just starting to get going, and he sort of cut straight into the middle of the race. Because, you know, blokes get on bikes all the time. You know, if they've come off or they've stopped or they get on bikes and they just get on and, and, and they know that everyone else will go around them. And it looked like Roe had just taken that same approach, like, I'm getting back on my bike, you guys can go around, but not in freaking Arenberg with fucking landmines every 20 centimetres. Are you across what's happened since then? Have you heard some of the quotes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, it has that had some spots. So he got, yeah, that's right. So he got mowed down by Pedersen from yeah. behind, like smashed into his. Have a look at the footage, people. It's spectacular. And, and then after he got sledged like crazy for doing it, but he said, I had a flat and I'd, I'd already, because we couldn't see this on the footage. Yeah. He was already still riding, but he had a flat and the flat just took him where he didn't intend to go, which was yeah. right in the middle of a fucking steam train led by Mads Pedersen at 40 k's an hour. <laughs> and he said, so to all the people who are criticising me, yeah. I had a flat, I was trying yeah. to get back on my bike, yeah. and I had the line that I wanted. Anyone who wants to speak anything else can go get fucked. Yeah, and I reckon that's a great way to respond too as a pro <laughs> athlete. with As a pro athlete with sponsors and, you know, team any else, the fucking juggernaut and all that, to just tell people to go fuck themselves up, that's just magnificent. <laughs> Scotty, there's so many talking points in this race. One of the ones we weren't expecting to talk about, the new Belgian sensation, the 22-year-old Florian Vermeesh. Mate, he was unbelievable. To be in the early break in your first Paris-Roubaix as a 22-year-old, that's good yeah. enough. Mm. Like, be happy with that. And rode out the front really strongly. You might recall there was a point where him and the DSM young fellow, they were riding together, who, incidentally, the DSM young bloke, he had won the Paris-Roubaix junior race a few yes. years ago. Yeah, I remember that. So they're that. riding out there together, mm. and he flicked the elbow, and he wouldn't come through, the DSM guy. Mm. He's probably saying, I can't get past you. How am I going to pull a turn? Yeah. So for them, when the big dogs come past, for him to latch onto that, and with 40 or 50 metres to go, look, the winner of Paris-Roubaix. Mm. Yeah, no, he looked real strong, didn't he? And maybe he would have won if he had have jumped a little bit later. Perhaps maybe then he wouldn't have got the space he did. But, yeah, no, it was incredible, wasn't it, how strong he was? Like, 
at that age. And, yeah, it was a three-votes performance, you know, best on ground sort of performance, wasn't it? Good to see a Belgian in a Belgian team. Yeah. Just driving it hard in the shit weather and on the cobbles. Yeah. It's going to be a good one to watch in the years to come. The other one um, was that uh, guy for Israel Startup Nation, who's the Canadian national champion, Guillaume Bovin. He was wearing that sort of red and white national jersey. He looked very strong too, and he, he was closing gaps comfortably as well. And again, that's what this race does. He just had a bit of luck. Uh, he had a mechanical or something and, or a crash or something. It wasn't his fault too, and he just went down. That was it. I was looking at him going, I reckon you're going all the way to the end with this group. I reckon he would have been right, no worries. But um, there, he had the Moscon treatment where it's just snatched away from you for oh, sometimes man. no fault of your own. Well, in the episode where we previewed Paris-Roubaix, hmm. we spoke about if you want to win it, you need positioning, you need power, you need tactical mouse, and you need luck. Gianni Moscon, <laughs> my goodness me, he was so stiff, wasn't he? Had a Is flat, this, yeah. and he still had a little bit of time up his sleeve. But as Simon Guerin said on the telecast on SBS, it probably cost him about 30 seconds. Mm. But that time was incidental in comparison to how impactful it was for his legs, for his mindset. Yeah. Um, that caused that incidental crash or the crash that we spoke about, you spoke about earlier. Mm. It was just momentum sapping, and he had yeah. no, no way of staying on the bike, and everything was just foreign all of a sudden. He would have won yeah. it, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, no, he was looking strong. We know he's a really good rider, but um, yeah, he was looking strong. Maybe that's karma for uh, you know, his uh, physical and racial outbursts over the years. And roundabout, Scotty. Sometimes mm. it just comes and bites you on the ass, doesn't it? Yeah, and you know, when we found out that he he's leaving Ineos and going to Astana, and both of us sent a message. Oh yeah, that fits. <laughs> Oh, we can't trust those bastards. And now that he's there, that's yeah, that's pretty yeah. fitting, I think. I, I always seem to sign those potent sort of riders, those those sort of riders, Astana. You know, and that's that's what Vinicola was. He he was that sort of rider, sort of potent. Mate, um, we actually had some social media posts requesting a little uh, listener input as to uh, some questions that the listeners might have, mm. and we've had one come in from Davy. And Davey asks, how would you blokes go on the cobbles? <laughs> how would I go? Yeah. I would go over them with a dual suspension mountain bike. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be a road bike, mate. Come on. Okay. I reckon if, honestly, and like not Arenberg or anything like that, no one gets to Arenberg and says, oh, yeah, they're not that big. It's not as big a deal as they said they were. Um, we watched, both you and I watched that cycling tips footage where two of their journalists went through and you really believed them, didn't you? Where like, they were going, mate, this is so rough. It's so hectic. When also when they're wet and slippery, it's so scary. And I, I really believe that. They had genuine fear in their eyes. Yeah. And when they were speaking, that was, that was scared. And they admitted that prior to riding over it, they were scared. Yeah, I reckon if you're asking me how I would go, I reckon it'd be all right, but I don't know if I'd have the uh, sort of like the power endurance to hold the power across the whole sector because for someone like a punter like me, holding that for three Ks, which for me is probably going to be about five or six minutes, you know what I mean? I could go all right while I could hold the power, but then the power would run out. Then when you lose too much momentum, then like Tommy said in our interview in one of our earlier episodes, you just stop dead. You just can't get going again. Need that forward momentum. I reckon I could cover quite comfortably 30 sectors of cobbles, mm. provided those sectors were about 10 meters long. <laughs> yeah, so you just do it like just have a little bit of a ramp, you know, like in um, Napoleon Dynamite, you know, with a little street ramp where he does the jump. You <laughs> just jump the over them. You just jump over <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah, just bunny hop the bastards. I didn't even feel the cobbles today. <laughs> yeah, God. Um, I think any mere mortal is in the same position that you are, Scotty, that you picture yourself being able to withstand the early onslaught from him and then just run out of zap. Yeah. Maybe even just tip over like Deani Moskin did. Yeah. That type of endurance and sh- sort of endurance strength to get through a long, hard, grinding race like that, that's not my go anyway. I know riders who are sort of, you know, relatively, that would be their go. They could do that. That's not my go. Like, my body's too pathetic for that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> there is a small part of me, like just a, a little glimmer or a flickering light in there that just wants to give it a go. Yeah, and we've discussed where we're looking at um, getting a half-wheeling trip to the world's next year in Wollongong, but also that's the other one that's coming. 
Uh, we want to do uh, Flanders, Roubaix and Amstel. And each one of those pro races has a like an amateur sportif ride beforehand too. So you can get a good crack at it apparently. Yeah, no, we'll be, we'll be giving it a go, but I wouldn't be surprised after about two sectors. I feel like, oh, yeah, no, I've got a good feel for it, Ross. That's enough now. Certainly be taking out travel insurance on that one, I reckon. <laughs> yeah. This question comes in from Craig, Scotty. His question is, what was the deal with Coolangatta Gold shoe covers? Oh, yeah. He rode in the shit all day, and they were white. They were pristine at the end of the race. What were they made of? I don't know. Like, yeah. I thought he might have had some Scotch card. Remember the Scotch card you used to put on your couches? <laughs> and it, you know, to keep the stains off? I thought he might and, have and, a bit of Scotch card. And why wouldn't you make the whole fucking setup of that stuff as well? And just, like, there's your aero, just everything rushing off it. Yeah. yeah. Non-stick. Plastic, man. Yeah. No, that was that was interesting, wasn't it? Because the socks were filthy, but the socks, I think, I don't know, it looks like those socks are joined to the shoe. I don't know. Dano, not equipped. Nah, Dunno. obviously, um, yeah, it's some sort of substance for just real tough bastards, which yeah. Cool and Gatter Gold is. And uh, Cool and Gatter Gold didn't wear his white nicks on this day, which is... Nah, that's disappointing. Yeah. Which hasn't worn them for a while. I'm, I'm a little bit flat about that. There was one last question that came in from Steve, and we sort of alluded to a little bit of this earlier. He was questioning Bahrain Victorious's season and how good it's been, um, and maybe even asking in a roundabout way who their doctor is. Yeah. Because there's been some pretty dramatic improvement from some of them. Yeah, because you know how certain teams, obviously, they have a nationality, like a base, you know, like Quickstep, Belgium, and Team Bike Exchange originally were Australian. UAE are Italian. They picked up the license from Liquid Gas. So Bahrain Victoria is apparently a a Slovakian. Is that right? I think they're Slovakian essence or Slovenian essence. Uh, No, not Slovenian. I think they're Czech, Czech Republic. So if they were Italian, I was thinking, yeah, for sure, but they're not. I know, I think, because I remember listening to Jack Hayden, he said, yeah, most of them are from Czech Republic. I think that's their national basis. So I don't know. I don't know what their reputation is, unfortunately. What we're going to do from a purity point of view is just take them at their word. Um, They had their room searched. They were... You know, all right, sorts of dealings with the tour. So we're just going to say, hey, innocent until proven guilty because that's how we roll at half Quill. The last Spain income race of the year, the last big one, the final one-day classic of the year is Lombardia, Scotty, the race yeah. of the falling leaves. More of a climber's classic, hence why if you roll your eyes through this field and scan it, it's very, very imposing. There's some really, really big-name riders in this one. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on this one, mate? I know Philippe is going there. Evanapol is going there. And obviously he had that horrific crash last year there. And he was in the lead group of two, wasn't he? Was he? Was, was, was he trying to hang on to Nibali? Yeah, so the other two guys that I'm thinking about, who else have we got? Form in the last few days, I really think Primoz Roglic is oh, yeah. going to be there or thereabouts. Milano Torino, he beat one of the eight boys. Yep. I think for the last 50 seconds of his attack, he averaged something like 740 watts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which peaked at about 1,050 watts. Um, the guy's a freak. He can just flick the switch and away he goes. So I reckon he's going to be right in it. And Pogacar's racing too, and he's quoted saying he feels like he's formed coming back up. Ishi is in there. The Koenig Quickstep, obviously, Alaphilippe and Remco, and they've actually got a pretty ominous team as well. So I think Jack Haig, I'm not sure whether Jack Haig is riding, you see. I don't know yeah. if he is, but I think I remember hearing him saying he would. I think he would, especially since he didn't do the tour, he didn't get to do the tour because he you know, crashed out on yeah. that stage two or three. So it'll be an interesting one, and it's great that there is this one-day classic for climbers. I, I don't think it adds a little bit of spice to the calendar, mm. and it's a great way to finish the year off. And it keeps those guys riding. Yeah, and it also the parkours um, really brings out good racing too. It's always like twos and threes, and in the last 10, 20 Ks, there's like four groups or whatever. So it just makes it really interesting. And, um, you know, uh, Nibbly, I remember just watching him descend, you know, he, he games time on the descents too. So um, that crash where Evan Apollo last year went over, they're not going down that section road. So I don't know if that's the response to that crash, but they're not doing that. So that's good from a safety point of view. But, um, yeah. It's a really good race, and and also the beauty again visually to watch because they're you know they're riding around Lake Como for a bit of it too. It's so spectacular. That's where our mate George Clooney has a house. He just sort of hangs out oh, George. there. George, yeah, good friend of the show actually, George. 
What's the FTP of George? Um, it's below us. Like he's he's obviously yeah. he's just a bit of a pleb, really. But you know, he's but he's got a lot of heart. He loves it. He's, he spends a bit of money on his bike. Yeah, he's got yeah. a good bike. Just yeah. just got to build his tank up a little bit. G'day, George, if you're listening. <laughs>